Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Today, we are excited to be talking with Dr. Christina Holland. She is a pelvic physical therapist practicing out of Denver, Colorado, who specializes in trauma-informed care for people across all gender identities. Welcome, Christina. Hi, Monica and Sammy. Thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you, Christina. Thanks for joining. So, Christina, tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. Oh, that's a good question. So (laughs) the last year was kind of a whirlwind. I changed a lot of things around. I've been in business for myself now for two years. And in addition to working for myself at Inclusive Care, I also work at Denver Health, which is a nonprofit community safety net organization, which has been great because it means that I get to work with folks who have all different types of insurance, no insurance. And I work with transgender folks after vaginoplasty and part of an integrated pelvic health program. And I say all of that because it's shaped what I've done in my time when I'm not in the hospital. So I do see patients one-on-one at inclusive care. And then I also have put out at the end of last year, a couple of trauma-informed care webinars. So both for folks who are non-professionals who just are like, I hear trauma-informed all the time. I know that this is a big deal, but I don't really know what it means or how to be that way in my life. So I had in those webinars, I had some parents who wanted to do trauma-informed parenting. And I had people who worked in front desks and offices and wanted to approach potential clients in a way that was trauma-informed. So that's been really cool in addition to doing the trauma-informed for professional stuff, which I love because it's it's always a really good conversation. So I'm grateful for that. And then I put out a playbook for painless sex last year, which was also really unexpected. It like came together in a way I didn't anticipate. And so I don't really know what's coming yet this year. I'm starting to think about doing a small membership for folks who want to have all sorts of information and community around painless sex that is medically based and medically accurate. But I'm in the very beginning stages of that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty busy. <laughs> Sorry, that was such a long answer. <laughs> that was a great answer. If that wasn't enough, you need to stop what you're doing and follow Christina on IG immediately. If you're a pelvic PT, she's got awesome reels. Her TikToks are just fabulous very active on there with your trauma-informed tips of the day. It's just a great smattering. I've loved it. That's how we met with social media, yeah. which is weird to think, but we're we're actually friends from that experience. So that's cool. Yeah, we've even been in real life friends. So that's cool. Like it usually doesn't go there, but I'm curious, how did you get into the trauma-informed side of healthcare? I think it was always on my radar insofar as I knew that I wanted to work with folks who didn't traditionally get good healthcare, who didn't traditionally have access to good healthcare. And so it was always something I knew that I needed to think about, but I didn't realize the full extent of what it means to be trauma-informed and how trauma can be perpetuated within the medical system until I was a patient myself. And so I saw a clinician I had a surgery. I've had multiple physical therapy experiences. And I've had a lot of clinically good care that was not trauma-informed and not a good experience. And so the combination of knowing that these groups and learning about these groups that I want to serve and want to help and want to get better access and recognizing all the barriers to the things that 
would allow them to have good access and then realizing that trauma perpetuated within the medical system is one of those barriers is how I got into it. That's such a huge part of why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place, because there's so many of these unspoken things in the medical world, and the PT world, where you might be giving the best evidence-based care, but if we're missing that relationship side of things or the trauma-informed side of things, any communication aspects, we can be giving our clients a horrible experience. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to pick your brain about this. Yeah, I'm super stoked to talk about it too because I think there's this really interesting divide, I think, in clinicians, particularly clinicians who treat pelvic health. There, there are a couple different ones, like people who treat pelvic health and people who don't, and then female clinicians or and non-female cl- clinicians and where people w- like socialize as women. And I say that because I think if you look at social media from clinicians, it becomes very obvious the way that the people that I follow who are not cisgender men discuss even like what we do in the clinic and explain it to either other clinicians or to patients is not the way that I would do that or the way that many of my female colleagues would do that. But it's also more than just being kind. So I think there's a lot that goes into trauma-informed care and providing folks with a really good experience. And I don't want people to think that it's just about being nice because it's not just about being nice. That brings me to my next question for you, which is can you define what is a traumatic experience in your eyes and what does it mean to have trauma-informed care? That's a definition that we have an idea of, but I would love to hear your interpretation of it. Yeah, let me start with the second part because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. There are actually six principles of trauma-informed care. I don't think any of them are necessary to talk about right this minute. The definition I use for trauma-informed care is that it is an intentionality around not perpetuating more trauma. Basically, we are reducing our risk of perpetuating harm. So harm can look like a lot of things, which kind of gets back to your first question. And I think things to think about are the two different types of trauma. And by that, I mean big T trauma, which are like big singular events, and little t trauma, which is a repetition of potentially smaller, smaller, I put that in air quotes. I know you can't, if you're listening, you can't see me, but I need you to know that smaller events that often accumulate into having these big impacts on our nervous system. So an integral part of talking about trauma is that it leaves an imprint on our nervous system and changes not only the way that we think, but our actual ability to think, which is a bastardized quote from The Body Keeps the Score. Love that book. I am three quarters of the way through. It is very dense and it needs to come with its own um, trigger warning. That book is a doozy, but it teaches us so many great things like trauma being stored in the body. And we work with people with pain who have possibly already had traumatic experiences before they ever see us. And then we're here to work with them in arguably the most intimate way possible. Even if we never do some type of exam with this person, we are always talking about their genitals. Maybe we're always referencing their pain, which could have started with a traumatic event. So one thing I'm curious about, how would you recognize that someone's having a trauma response if you're working with them? Can we even recognize that? Yeah. So I think that's worth talking about, but I also want to just say that even if you never recognize that someone's having a traumatic response, it doesn't mean that they aren't having one. So that's actually mm-hmm. one of the things out of The Body Keeps the Score, which is that even if people are totally stoic on the outside and they may not even in that moment know that they're being triggered and know that they're having a traumatic response, their MRIs and their their PET scans are telling us something different. So that's really important to know. And with that knowledge, 
I don't treat some people in a trauma-informed way and some people not in a trauma-informed way. I just show up to every interaction in a way that would, again, minimize my possibility of doing harm. And so that's like a big old disclaimer. When we're looking to see are people potentially having traumatic experiences or are in a trauma response, I look at what is their heart rate? What is their breathing pattern? Is it really shallow? Are they behaving in a way that I don't expect is probably the broadest umbrella way that I think about it. Sometimes that looks like someone crying and I didn't expect it, or maybe they're yelling and I didn't expect it, or maybe they're really quiet and I didn't expect it. And whether I didn't expect it because that's not like a socially acceptable, that's also in air quotes, way to behave, or it's because they're behaving in a way that's different from how I know them to behave. Any of those things might indicate to me that someone's having a trauma response or they like seem to be somewhere else. Like they've checked Mm. out of their body, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Any of those things. And the dissociation is the disclaimer that I think we all get with pelvic exams. Someone's going to dissociate. So I love that you point out that any response outside of the normal or any physiological response that's exaggerated could be a sign, but there might not be signs. Yeah. So we can't just pick and choose who we're going to practice this, which is like picking and choosing biopsychosocial care, right? Like I'm only going to give that to these people and these other people, they're, well, they're just fine with exercise and and a standard plan of care. So that leads me to then think, okay, so you've got someone in front of you, you think they're clearly dissociating, let's say, or they're clearly having some type of response. How do you handle that? So I'm very conscientious about not giving people the space to dissociate on the exam table. The way that I do that Mm -hmm. is I'm constantly asking them questions, keeping them in their body. I'm not chatting about random stuff there while we're doing an exam. I'm not trying to distract them. I'm not allowing them to distract themselves. And that's all intentional. And it's no one's favorite thing for whom that might be a traumatic thing or might have the potential to trigger them. But I'm not doing them any favors if I let them distract themselves out of it because now I'm potentially giving them space to dissociate, which there's a lot of harm that can happen when that occurs. And for what I want to do, a lot of the time I'm trying to reconnect or help people reconfigure the connection between their brain and a part of their body. So I want them to be firing neurons that will promote that. So I just want to say that briefly. Otherwise, I have a very low threshold for ending exams insofar as if I perceive people's pain to be really significant, if I perceive that people are looking really anxious or starting to get that kind of shallow breathing, any of those things, I'll just say, okay, and that's all for today. And I will tell people what I'm going to do. So the thing that I didn't really get any training in is I tell people you can terminate this exam at any time. You know, we can end this at any time for any reason. But I didn't ever get the training of what you tell them you're going to do after. Do you just pull your fingers out during an exam? That seems like it could be potentially triggering. So instead I say, okay, you're going to film me remove my finger now. And is that okay? And I get consent for that. And then I move. So going off of the consent thing, so much trauma can happen when patients are feeling bullied into something they feel uncomfortable with. And we get a lot of technical training on how to perform these exams, but there are sometimes those gray zones, right? Those patients who come in and they seem a little uncomfortable and you try to give them that buffet of options. You try to tell them, these are your assessment options. This is what you can expect out of this exam. Is that okay with you? Feels a little bit incomplete. And I I would love to hear your spiel. What do you tell a patient first time coming in the door on the eval? How do you get them uh, educated on what to expect and get their consent in a truly informed way? 
Sure. So I actually start that process even before we're even talking about a physical exam. So I will start with asking people, I would like to ask questions about your pregnancy experience. Is that okay with you? I would like to ask, and then the next section comes, I would like to ask questions about your toileting habits. Is that okay with you? I would like to ask questions about your sexual practices. Is that okay with you? So then I will ask them, is it okay if I tell you what an exam could possibly look like? And so I don't even say this is what I typically do or this is what I normally do. I say some of the options that we have for getting information about what your muscles are doing is we can do an external exam where I'll look at your breathing. I'll look at your ability to contract your muscles. And that can totally be done with your clothes on. Another option is that you can disrobe from the waist down and I can take a look at the muscles right around your vaginal opening. And we're looking to see what happens when you take a deep breath, what happens when you bear down, what happens when you do a Kegel. And I'm looking to see if your muscles are all coordinated. Another option would be to do an internal exam. I don't use a speculum. I don't use stirrups. I just use my glove finger and you'll feel my finger at your vaginal opening. And I'm just checking to see what the strength of the muscles are, if the muscles are tight or weak or strong have good endurance, have bad endurance. Does that sound like an exam that you are open to today? And if they have any pause whatsoever, it's, is there any part of that exam that is not going to work for you today? And I generally have pretty good results with that. What do you do in the case of that patient who is desperate to fix their condition? They're coming in and they really want this problem solved, but you can sense that hesitation with them. I frequently encounter these patients who say, just do whatever you need to do get it done. It's not my favorite thing, but I want this to get better. And that feels weird to me. You know, (laughs) like that doesn't feel, uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't think there's a perfect answer. I will typically tell people, I really appreciate that. I want you to know that I know a lot about the muscles and bones and the nerves of the pelvis, but ultimately what I know and my expertise doesn't mean anything without your input. The reason being is that all of that is interfacing with your brain and spinal cord. And so I don't have any input or knowledge about what that's doing unless you tell me. So if doing this exam is going to make you really anxious or if it's currently making you really anxious, I would just as soon do it next time. You can go home. You can think on it. You can sleep on it. And then you can decide next time if that's the time that you want to do it. And sometimes they're still going to be like, nah, I just let's just get it over with. And I think that's also okay. I'm okay with people saying, let's just get it over with. Because I think the flip side of that is people are like, oh, I'm just going to have so much anxiety leading up to the next exam that I'd rather just not do that. I just want to do it now, which is fine. I just also tell people, you can terminate this exam at any time for any reason. And if I notice that it seems like things are really painful, that is not my goal. So I will terminate the exam at that point or end the exam or we'll do something differently at that point. That's a fair answer. And I guess that's also true that somebody who chooses to go through it, that even if they're uncomfortable, they're still exercising their agency. And that's a choice that they're making. And if they're truly informed, then they can weigh the risks and benefits for themselves. And you have to let them make that decision. Completely. The thing that I am still figuring out how to get into my normal spiels is acknowledging that when it comes to pelvic exams, there is some amount of risk associated. There's not really risk to their to their body, but there is potentially risk to their mind and spirit. And so I do want to tell people like, this could make you sore. The exam is not intended to be painful. You could be sore at the end or potentially tomorrow. And it is possible that this is something that could trigger some memory or some experience of trauma that you've had in the past, right? And I still don't know exactly when or where or how to say that in every instance. In a way, you don't want to be scaring people that you're going to be causing them trauma 
yet some people might not recognize that either. Right. I don't want to use nocebic language that is going to set them up for failure and for Mm -hmm. a, a negative experience. And I want to provide them truly informed consent. I want them to give informed consent. I love how you are actually bringing the consensual process in from the very beginning of the exam, because it's always bothered me that we just push people through a series of questions and then we get to this huge thing and I'm supposed to say, are you okay with that? And they go, yes. And I'm like, okay, excellent. Now I have your consent. So I've also been shifting my practice to sometimes not offer that, or if they are already explaining that they don't want to, maybe change the menu of options. How would you say that your practice has changed, maybe from a big picture view, since you've been incorporating these trauma-informed principles? That's really interesting. So I, from the very beginning, probably because of my experience as a patient, was always very clear about I wanted ongoing active consent from folks. So throughout a pelvic exam, actually, this is something that has changed. I used to say, I'm going to do this now. Is that okay? And now I say, I would like to do this thing. Would that be okay with you? Or is that okay? And I do not move until I get a verbal or a visual consent. And that's huge. Like your shift in language there seems so minute, but it really centers the person in their own experience rather than, again, doctors do things to me. I'm used to that. So here's another one doing something to me. Right. And I will tell people I have to give a disclaimer at the beginning of a visit, especially when people are like, you just do what you feel like you need to do. I tell them, I'm going to ask you approximately a million and five times if the next thing, if the next step is okay with you. If it is, great. Just keep telling me, yes, that's awesome. If it's not, that's also great. Tell me no and we'll stop right away. So that is that is something that has also shifted because I used to just do it, but people are not used to being asked what they prefer and especially people socialized as women. So I at the beginning, I told people like my my secret hope is that If you grow to anticipate a medical provider asking you your consent this many times and expecting you to actively, enthusiastically give consent and not participating in things that you are not giving that type of consent for, that maybe you'll grow to expect it in other areas of your life. Preach. I mean, what a (laughs) implication. Yeah. Could we just, if this is Brene Brown, I'd be like, say what you said again. (laughs) (laughs) That's huge. That's totally a different way to move through your exam process. And it, it all comes down to what Sammy was saying in terms of, I'm just allowing people to practice their agency. So something else that's changed in my practice over time is my belief around what's important and I used to think that I was, as a physical therapist, my job was to take all the puzzle pieces, take all the inputs and spit out the solution, the like singular solution. And I no longer think that's my job. I think my job is to honor people's agency and to reduce the potential that I do, if nothing else, that I do no harm to this individual, if it's at all avoidable, and that I can assist and coach and change people's beliefs and expectations for what to expect in a medical visit. So the way that I talk to people takes a lot more time, right? Like it takes so much more time to get active consent that way and to wait for people's responses. And I think that is more important than any singular intervention that I can provide an individual. So that is the very first thing that comes. The interventions come second. 
Mm-hmm. Talk about going slow first to go fast later, right? You're establishing this rapport. You're establishing this trust from the get-go that you're not going to do anything to this person that they are not okay with. And what a huge shift for somebody with pelvic pain who's anticipating, who's guarding, who's very scared and nervous. They might have a far better outcome if they're working with somebody that they trust who took that extra 20 minutes to go through that consent process with them. So I I think that's really cool. And it's definitely tough in the insurance-based system to remind yourself that you need to take that extra time. I honestly call it neuromuscular re-education. If you want to talk about like, how do I build that? I build it as neuromuscular re-education because that's what I'm doing. I'm helping people downtrain their nervous systems. And not only am I preparing them in that moment, I'm preparing them for every interaction with me and hopefully every interaction with a healthcare provider and maybe other interactions in their lives after that. So that to me, that's exactly what I'm doing. It doesn't feel fraudulent for me to bill it that way. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious in the pelvic floor sphere, is there something specific that you wish people would do differently? Is there something besides all the things that we've already talked Mm -hmm. about? Is there a podium that you want to get on and be like, stop doing this thing or start doing this thing? Oh, I mean, nosemic language is a huge one, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're still doing so much harm to folks by preparing them to have negative outcomes. And I I just, I hate that. We went from people having no knowledge about pelvic health to now having not too much knowledge, just knowledge of the wrong things. Just fear, right? They're scared. I don't want to have a gap. I don't want to leak. I I don't want to have this. When people come see me, it's help me not have these things. And I'm like, that's impossible. If you're going to push a baby out of your vagina, there is no amount of guarantee that we could give you that something may or may not happen. Completely. And so, yes, come to me and we'll fix it. My The biggest thing is helping people conceptualize that there's something that can be done about it and that you have a lot of that knowledge and power. You're not coming to me because I'm going to wave a magic wand so you don't leak anymore or not have prolapse symptoms anymore. You're coming to me so that I can provide as much information as possible for you to sort through and we'll try together to figure out what's going to make what's going on in your body manageable. And hopefully a lot of it goes away. And sometimes – it, but I work in persistent pelvic pain. Sometimes it doesn't go away. Like mm-hmm. sometimes people still have pain. And I used to take that so personally, like I was not good at my job because people still had pain. And now I think it's it's just – it's a reality. There are people who have pain on a persistent basis. I am one of those people. It's manageable some of the time. It's not manageable some of the time. But the, it's the difference between pain and suffering for me. And can I – communicate that to patients. But when they come to me with this expectation, so go outside of persistent pelvic pain, talking about prolapse symptoms or leaking, and they've already been primed for those things to be things that they suffer through, that's so much harder. And it's so unfair. So unfair. I think it's amazing how much marketing in pelvic floor PT is based off of this fear stuff. Prevent this, prevent that, restore your pelvic floor, and all of these things that are trying to instill this message of something's wrong with you, you are broken. And if you don't come and see me and work with me and let me fix you, then you're screwed. And it's that, yeah, you're so right. It sets people up for suffering. And the flip side is, is like, as a business owner, I get why people do it. I understand. I just also don't think it's necessary. So leaking is a great example. If you have four young kids at home and you're leaking a whole bunch, that might be something that is not tolerable to you. But if you're leaking just a little bit when you sneeze or cough, 
you might not have the bandwidth or the resources or have it be worthwhile to you to change whether or not you're leaking a little bit when you sneeze. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to tell you that's wrong. I'm here to tell you that is your choice because it's your body and you get to pick. I'm so glad that people have priorities. So this is going back to a post I remember on your Instagram, and it said something like, when you can identify a trauma response in someone else, you can identify it in yourself. And I think the flip side of trauma-informed care is understanding that we are exposing ourselves to trauma in some situations as well. Patients can tell us about traumatic experiences or their outbursts could even trigger a trauma for us. Like a patient could yell and maybe I'm really sensitive to that. And so now I'm having my own response. What kind of self-care do you practice or would you share for those of us who are having that type of hard day or that type of hard experience? Yeah. So when you asked me the question about how has this changed your practice, this is something that came up for me, but it didn't change my practice. My practice changed my personal life. When I started talking about and recognizing and naming trauma in sessions, and that's not to say that I ask people about their trauma because I absolutely do not because that has a very high risk of triggering someone and putting them in a place that they don't need to be when they're in my office. But if people are sharing trauma or sharing the thing about trauma responses is no one likes them. They're really unpleasant. They're unpleasant. They're unpredictable. They seem irrational. And people have a lot of shame around them. And so I did so much recognizing and affirming and validating for other people that not only is it okay that you are having this response in my office right now, it's rational. It makes perfect sense that you would feel anxiety about an exam after this thing that you just told me happened to you. So that's your body and brain doing the best that it can to keep you safe. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So we just have to make it feel safe so that doesn't happen again. Is there anything that you can think of that might make your body and brain feel more safe? Things like that. So doing that over and over and over again, finally, I was like, oh, shit, Christina, you're not special. You're not exempt from having trauma responses. Oh, it's a, it was like so typical, right? Perfectionist nonsense where I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so understandable in other people, but for me, absolutely fucking not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We hear you. Keep going. (laughs) After seeing it over and over and over again, and then realizing that I was behaving in ways that I didn't expect myself to behave, I was like, oh, shit, light bulb. This is a trauma response, and I need to do something differently so that my body and brain feel safe so that this doesn't happen again. And we could talk about all the ways in which we're socialized to do this. But even that to me was for my patients. It was because I recognized that if I am triggered in session, which I have absolutely been, that I do not provide the best care, right? Because I literally cannot. My frontal lobe is offline. I honestly think that the hardest work that I do on a regular basis at this point is recognizing all of the ways and all the times that I have the tendency to feel shame and shutting it down. So I am regularly just telling myself, no, that's actually a very rational response to this situation. And I need to give myself some time and find some ways to make my brain and body feel safe. So in terms of what is the self-care that I do, that looks very different on very different days. I think that's the main thing, though, is how can I stop shaming myself in small ways a million times throughout my day for things that should not be shameful? 
And I think that's important because especially when it comes to things that are happening in our world right now in terms of conversations about racism and conversations about healthcare discrepancies, our shame is designed to try and shut things down. And it's violent because it doesn't allow us to interact with the facts and the information at hand. And so not letting shame take over is the thing that's going to get us to the next step in the process where we want to be. Wow. You just tied together everything. I feel like this whole podcast has been full of aha moments, but I seriously want to acknowledge you for discussing shame as a provider, because I think when we understand that shame is not something we're exempt from, we can actually have a deeper sense of connection with our patients. The number one thing that will get rid of shame is exposing it to the light and having someone who can hold space for you. But you can't hold space for someone in their shame when you're in your own shame. It's just two tornadoes spinning in opposite directions. Everyone's going to leave feeling triggered and it's just a hot mess of a session. Your call for compassion to ourselves and to our patients is huge. Yeah. And I think about how I didn't realize that I was experiencing shame. What I thought I was experiencing was defensiveness or righteous anger. That's what I really thought I was experiencing was righteous anger. Man, that patient was such an asshole. Or like, why is this patient late for the 50,000th time when in actuality I was feeling triggered by something else having potentially nothing to do with patient. So now I talk all the time about healthcare providers doing things the wrong way because I think that is so rare. And I don't do it to throw colleagues under the bus. I don't do it because I've never been wrong. I don't do it because I don't believe I could perpetuate harm. I actually do it because I think I could perpetuate harm. Because when I listen to people talk about horrific experiences that they've had with providers, and when I reflect on the horrific experiences I've had with providers, I think to myself, what is the difference between them and me? And what would it take for me to do something the wrong way that could make it a horrific experience for somebody else? Because I don't believe by and large that people get into medicine or healthcare for any other reason that they want to help people. So how do we go from wanting to help people to actively perpetuating trauma? And I think a lot of that is defensiveness. And a lot of that is shame. And I also think that a lot of that is a really outdated model of Western medicine. We were taught by the people who were taught by the people that taught by the men that decided that medicine was something that they practiced. Right. The racist white men. <laughs> the racist white men. When we look at the history of Black women in medicine and how they were treated, we're talking generations of trauma, right? And then we are also the white providers being raised into that in a way where nobody's discussing it. Like, I do not remember having conversations around what was the gynecological care of Black women for the last hundred years. Nobody prepared me for that. And then you see a woman and you could tell she's not trusting you and you're kind of like, well, why not? I'm different. But what you don't know is that you're not different. You're doing the same exact things that she heard about, that you're not listening to her, like you don't believe her pain. It goes on and on. Part of it is almost acknowledging that we were trained in this system. And especially as like a white cisgendered woman, I have picked up a lot of beliefs from the system that nobody told me were already handed my way. And that's not an excuse anymore. But that does create, I think, some compassion for the shame rather than that self-criticism and hardship, because that makes the shame stronger. 
And so the more you're getting triggered, it tells me you're actually trying to suppress it in some way or ignore it or invalidate it or shame yourself for feeling ashamed, which I call it the shame shit show. Like you're just falling in a pool of mud and you're trying to help somebody else get out of a pool of mud and you can't do it. You're both sliding everywhere. I'm glad you can see me because I was just like aggressively nodding my head the whole time. But something that I do want to discuss is that I don't want people to perceive this to mean that we show up and we're a mess in front of our patients. Because while I think acknowledging our humanity is important and also extending that acknowledgement of our humanity to our patients is acceptable and positive in a lot of ways, if you're triggered, you figuring out your triggeredness in a session is not helpful and could also perpetuate harm. So finding a way to excuse yourself or like compartmentalize so that you can unpack that on your own time, I do think is important. Yes. Yes. And we're going to be having a conversation in the future about secondary traumatic stress, because that is something very real that unfortunately way too many PTs I know of have shared with me. If you're burnt out, if you're constantly getting triggered, this is not to say, hey, that's great. Keep going. We see you. This is to say, you got to stop. Just like you would stop that pelvic exam, you need to stop and you might need to take a break from work and get to the point where your nervous system is able to handle interacting with other people's nervous systems that might not be so regulated. In essence, we're trying to help people co-regulate. And we can't do that when our nervous system is bonkers. And that could be contributing to your burnout too. So this is a word of warning. If you're there, you need a timeout, probably a hard timeout ASAP, like not in three months when you think things are going to open back up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's completely reasonable, rational, and logical that people would be feeling burned out and having a hard time regulating right now. That is not a personal shortcoming. It's not like a personal failure. So I actually, I had this experience at the beginning of the year of 2020. By the end of the year, I wanted to go from three days at the hospital that I work at to two days. Then coronavirus hit. Everything was different. I was furloughed. I worked on my business a whole bunch. In terms of my inclusive care business, did like really well, all things considered. And I went back to work at the hospital, back to my three days, and I was going to ride it out. I was like, now is not a good time to go down to two days because who knows what could happen with the second wave. And turns out we only had one wave because we can't fucking get it under control. Sorry. (laughs) In any case, it got to the point where I just realized that every time I entered the building and donned my surgical mask and donned the gloves and donned the face shield, that I was already super upregulated. It wasn't setting anyone up for success. And of course, my patients aren't very well regulated either. And in fact, are even more poorly regulated than usual. And already I work with people who have a complex history of trauma. So it got to the point where I absolutely felt like I already only work here part time and I'm feeling like I can't do this. I can't. There must be something wrong with me. And I spoke to the director of the department who was really great in that moment. I was telling him that I was thinking about taking some time, dropping down to two days a week. And he was like, you know what? Christina, the thing is, is that those messages are really important to listen to because if you want to have a long career and you will not be able to do this for a long time if you don't listen to those messages. And so to have a director who was supportive of me was huge. It really helped with the shame I was experiencing. But a lot of what I had to come to terms with for myself was that regardless of whether or not I wanted to be triggered and unregulated and feel terrible all the time, 
I was triggered and unregulated and didn't feel good all the time. And I was going to perpetuate harm. And I got so much closer than I would ever feel comfortable getting to doing that. And that's when I was like, nah, I got to change this. And now that I have, now that I'm there two days a week and I'm at inclusive care three days a week, I am so much better regulated. Yeah. And that could look different for everybody. I took time off during the pandemic as well. And it seemed crazy to me. It was probably back in April or May. And I took two weeks off because I I was feeling the same way. And on paper, I was like, I'm hardly treating a caseload. But just interacting with those people, just knowing that I had to be on, it wasn't working. It totally wasn't working. I needed more time. My my company was awesome and I was able to do that and come back with a much different perspective. But that's to say it's not on us as a failing and I'm not sure where that kind of universal thing gets implanted in us that if we can't capitalism. <laughs> I mean, if you can't keep up with the productivity, you're bad but you got to take care of yourself. And our job does require, I think, a lot of emotional and mental work from us in a way that is hard to see because it's not physical labor, but we are always on, we are always processing, we are always connecting, holding space. Holding space is so much harder than offering advice. (laughs) It's so much easier to be like, if you do this HEP three times a week for the next six weeks, you will be fine, Mm -hmm. you know, and then to sit there and help this person navigate their efficacy and start to become part of their care, that takes so much more nurturing. And our system doesn't support that. So if you're trying to do that in the confines of a system that's, hey, you have back-to-back patients, I just want to say to you, it's okay that you're feeling this disconnect. I don't know what that means for you in the long term. But I myself just think it's ridiculous. Like I need to cycle through five patients back to back before I get an hour long lunch. What? Yeah. Yeah, If you don't change your environment, it will change you. There is no other option. I I 100% agree with what both of you are saying. If you're feeling that grand scheme of burnout and emotional exhaustion and depersonalization that you're describing, that's something you absolutely have to address. But From a day-to-day micro perspective, we all have these little things that come up, right? I woke up this morning and my neck hurts. Like I got a kink in my neck. I'm feeling a little under the weather or maybe I just got an email that stressed me out. You have these little micro things. And I think that's where the insidious stuff comes in, where you're dysregulated from these little things. And I'd love to learn more techniques for myself about how to ground in that moment and be a better stable force for my patients when exposed to those little things. Yeah. Some of that's resiliency, right? And what can we handle? And then in those moments, yeah, it's a really good question. How much do you let what's happening in those micro moments like you're talking about impact your care? The thing that I try and think about that helps me, and this is not prescriptive, but what helps me is thinking about the likelihood that I'm going to perpetuate harm and decreasing that likelihood as much as possible as the number one thing that is the most important to me. And and that's a value of mine. That's not going to be a value of everyone, which is why it's not prescriptive. That is a value of mine. And so I do that first. Everything else comes after that. And so for me, I am able to regulate myself a little bit better to be able to co-regulate with folks. Sometimes it's hard, too, because it's like that might work with a patient who I really enjoy and we jive, and that might work much less well with a patient who is a thorn in my side. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I think for me, it's tuning into how I feel in sessions. And I almost think of it like a radio dial. Like I'm always observing my patient for their reactions. And so I'm also trying to observe myself for my own reactions and notice like, when am I having a spike or when am I having even on the flip side, like a dip in energy? I need to get up, remember that I have to pee, go grab a snack, do whatever it is. So I think it's balancing both in in some ways. Because if you don't know that you're dysregulated, then all of the tips and tricks don't actually help you. And so it's identifying what your own triggers are, whether it's how you feel or your heart rate. I think everybody has some type of cue that they could notice but it's probably about finding what your cue is. Naming it is so huge. If you're in the session and you go, wow, I'm really anxious right now. This person just said this thing to me or they remind me of someone who triggers me or whatever. Like you just name it. And I feel, at least for myself, I feel like just knowing that I feel that way, I can watch myself a little bit better. I can be more mindful, take it a little slower, not expect as much out of myself in that session in terms of I don't have to give them 5 million things that day. I just have to be there and present and try to not do harm. That's a a good way to put it. Yeah, I do a lot of breathing with patients. I'm like, and we're going to turn at least one of these lights off and we're going to sit here in the dark and it's good for your nervous system. And I'm like, it's good for my nervous system. (laughs) There are some patients I've seen, like there are going to be people that are just hard to work with for lots and lots of reasons. And so a lot of those people I work with in the partial darkness because I'm like, all of our nervous systems (laughs) need as little input as possible right now. Uh, That's awesome. I was thinking... When we were talking about like, how do you recognize if you are in a place where you can't push through or you shouldn't push through? And of course, that's going to depend for absolutely everyone. I will say for me, it looked like two interactions very close together. So one interaction where it was the end of the day, I knew that I needed to get home. I was trying to get home a little bit early because I was going to meet friends outside for dinner and I hadn't seen anyone in a really long time. So I was like, this is important. I need to get out of here on time. My last patient of the day was a mistakenly scheduled eval who was also non-English speaking. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to try and get through this as quickly as possible. And who honestly was not even really that appropriate for physical therapy. It was probably a surgical candidate. Like the outcome that she wanted, she wasn't going to get from physical therapy. She wanted a reverse of her prolapse. And so I am trying to do this appointment through a telephone interpreter, which takes 50% longer at least. Mm -hmm. And I was short. Like I did not have my normal like cheery, tell me all the things, like let me hold as much space for you as possible demeanor. I absolutely did not. And that patient in the visit was like, I don't want you to think that this is only a cosmetic issue for me. I'm very concerned about this for my health. So what I got out of that is she knows that I am not thrilled to be here and she thinks that it's about her. And that is harmful. That's really fucked up. That's not okay that I did that. That doesn't feel good. That is the antithesis of everything that I really try very hard day in and day out to do and to be. So then I had to do a lot of backtracking to try and tell her, no, I don't think that. And some more like repair and rapport building and trying to make it so she didn't leave having had a bad experience or thinking that her provider thought that she was vapid or shallow. So that really sucked. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a sign that something is not right. And then another visit that I had, I was like, okay. I I like had a woo-saw moment with myself in the morning. I was like, okay, Christina, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to be short, but we're also not going to 
ask people lots of personal questions. We're just going to talk about the biomechanical stuff and we're going to leave everything else out of it. And I like recognizing like I do not have the capacity to be a vessel to hold this stuff right now. I have too much of my own stuff. Literally like six minutes into the visit, this person is telling me about trauma she experienced decades ago that she had never told anyone about, that she hasn't had sex since then, like some really heavy, hard stuff. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God. I was like, I'm going to have to call like an immediate therapist, not for this patient, but for me, because I'm so triggered and so full that I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just, I stuffed it down that in that moment, that was all I had access to do. I stuffed it down. I stepped out. I took a couple big deep breaths as she was getting undressed for the exam. And we came back in and we did the thing. And she had she had a great experience. She said nothing but nice things. She hadn't seen a gynecologist in decades. She let me connect her with somebody. She like has told me multiple times over now that she loves me. And it was such a good experience. And now we have such a good relationship. But that was such a reminder to me too that like that could have gone very poorly. And I'm very grateful that it didn't. And so those two situations close together, both were like, okay, it's time to change my schedule. It's not like I, I didn't care about people. It's that I, I described it to actually my director as I don't know how to burn less brightly. So I need to just burn less often. Mm. Wow. And that's the way I manage my energy. So you don't burn out. So I don't burn out. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Well, let's call it there. I don't know that we could get deeper than the little poem that was just written on accident. <laughs> And Christina, we do love to end our guests with a lightning round of questions. Can I ask you the lightning round? Heck yeah. Enthusiastic consent. Okay. All right. Let's do it. What is your favorite drink at the moment? Lemon drop martini. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. All right. Get your bougie self ready. What <laughs> is the best book you've read lately? I love uh, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Oh, deep one. Gets you right in the feels. Yes, it really does. Don't read it if you're trying not to cry. Oh, no. You need to. I like. Definitely not. Yeah. it's Read like, it if you're trying to cry. Actually, read it if you need to cry. If you need to remember what you like about humanity and all the bittersweet, ugly, beautiful things that happen, the brutal things, as Glennon Doyle says, definitely read that book. Oh, okay. That gave me chills just thinking about it. What is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? Take a deep breath. If you weren't a pelvic floor PT, what would you do for work? I think I'd be a sex educator. And a damn good one at that. Yep. How do you define a conscious clinician? Someone who intentionally decreases their propensity for perpetuating harm. Mm, do no harm. It has been an honor and a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us and setting such a clear example of how we can reduce harm and try to practice no harm in pelvic PT. Thanks for having me. It Thanks, Christina. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.